Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present labor and racial justice activist Bill Fletcher Jr., who examines the outcome of the 2022 midterm election and the ongoing threat to democracy posed by extremist Republican Party election deniers. Mariana Pacora of the group Voters of Tomorrow, who talks about the work her group did to achieve a large turnout of young voters that helped block the predicted red wave of Republican victories in the midterm election. And Chase Ironeyes, lead attorney with the Lakota People's Law Project, who discusses what's at stake for Native culture and survival in a Supreme Court case challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. When House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last summer, U.S. Coast Guard ships and Chinese fishing boats were engaged in a standoff near the Galapagos Islands off the coast of Ecuador. On a mission to stop illegal fishing in the Pacific, the Coast Guard attempted to board Chinese fishing vessels to look for signs of illegal and unregulated fishing in an area of threatened fish stocks. The Coast Guard mission was prompted by Latin American governments and environmental activists' complaints of overfishing by China's fishing fleet. Three vessels sped away, one turning aggressively 90 degrees toward the Coast Guard cutter, forcing the American vessel to take evasive action to avoid being rammed. According to the Associated Press, the incident, which was kept under wraps by the U.S. Coast Guard, was a potential breach of international maritime law. In 2021, 475 Chinese fishing boats in the eastern Pacific scooped up over 420,000 tons of squid, a catch viewed as unsustainable by many environmental scientists. After the incident, China issued a written letter of protest and summoned U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns to the Chinese Foreign Ministry. At-sea inspections are considered a vital tool to verify that fishing vessels are following rules regarding the use of forced labor, environmentally hazardous gear, and the targeting of threatened species. The nation of Namibia in southern Africa is working to overcome decades of underdevelopment by building a large renewable energy project to produce green hydrogen for making ammonia, an important industrial chemical. Led by German investment of $9.4 billion, the project could jumpstart the nation's economy and serve as a symbol of Africa's untapped potential for renewable energy. According to The Economist magazine, Africa's biggest energy challenge is building needed electrical power capacity, but producing more energy quickly can easily conflict with limits on carbon emissions negotiated at the COP27 UN Climate Summit. Although clean renewable energy is the largest source of electricity in 22 African countries, 590 million Africans, about half of sub-Saharan Africa, have no access to electrical power. In 2009, 
Western wealthy nations pledged $100 billion a year to poor countries by 2020 to address climate change issues, including attracting private investment in renewable sources of electricity. But the annual amount has never surpassed $85 billion, and much of it has been in the form of loans. Now rich nations have once again promised they will reach the $100 billion target this year, but many in Africa are skeptical, declaring talk is cheap. A decade ago, Superstorm Sandy slammed into the New York, New Jersey coast, delivering a wake-up call about a new era of extreme weather events driven by climate change. The storm left 70,000 housing units uninhabitable in New York City. Sandy hit many working-class immigrant communities in the outer boroughs and flooded the subway system in lower Manhattan. Sandy was a massive storm, three times the size of Hurricane Katrina, which ravaged New Orleans in 2005, flooding 51 square miles of New York City and causing $70 billion in damage. Afterwards, New York City invested nearly $1.5 billion to protect the coastline, building sand berms, flood walls and gates, and raising parklands. Today, low-income and working-class tenants remain vulnerable to climate change destruction. The Nation magazine reports 25% of the Big Apple's housing stock faces risks of catastrophic flooding. Nationally, 40% of renters do not have a way to evacuate during a big storm, three times the rate of homeowners. It seems that at every level of government, there is a lack of urgency around mitigating the impacts of climate disasters, particularly when it comes to protecting those most at risk. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Although U.S. pollsters and corporate media pundits forecast a red tsunami of Republican Party victories in the November 8th midterm election, voters had a different outcome in mind. Conventional wisdom in recent election history led many to believe that the midterm election under a first-term president usually sees big losses for the party in power. However, while not all the votes have been counted, Democrats will retain control of the U.S. Senate for another two years, and it's likely that Republicans will win a very slim majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. While some 345 Republican candidates who ran for office in the midterms parroted Donald Trump's lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen through massive fraud, many of these election deniers lost pivotal contests in swing states and failed to gain new ground in about 95% of statewide races. Higher-than-expected turnout among young people and women, mobilized by the GOP threat to democracy, and the Supreme Court's elimination of federal protection for women's reproductive rights, were among the reasons that Democrats did better than predicted. Your reporter, along with Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner, spoke with labor and racial justice activist Bill Fletcher, Jr., who examines the outcome of the midterm election and the ongoing threat to democracy posed by an extremist Republican Party, where many have embraced delusional conspiracy theories 
white supremacy, and political violence. We've been in a state of a cold civil war. It's a very different situation than those of us alive now have experienced in our lifetimes. Uh, even with the crisis of Watergate, uh, which was a real challenge to democratic and constitutional rule, that was different. Uh, we have a well-organized right-wing authoritarian mass movement that has an armed wing and has uh, essentially uh, united with what one could call the neoliberal right, uh, people like the Koch brothers, et cetera, or the Koch brother now, and uh, want to alter the Constitution, want to, in, a sense, in essence, eliminate democracy. So that's the situation that we're in. Now, the second thing is that uh, this election tells us that the polls are essentially unreliable. Uh, we saw this in 2016. We saw this again in 2020 when we were told that there would be a blue wave. Now we see uh, unreliable polls. And, and I think that one of the things that this means is that going forward, uh, we should pretty much ignore polls except for very objective ones that are commissioned internally within campaigns, which for the most part I don't think should be publicized. As, as a union person, I'd say, you know, if, you, if you're doing a, uh, an election to bring in a union, you want to know whether you have a good chance of a victory, and you have to do the best assessment you can. I think that one of the things that we saw in this election was an over-reliance on Republican-influenced polls uh, that were aimed, I believe, at demoralizing Democratic voters. The third thing about this election is that contrary to many people who were, particularly in, excuse me, in the mainstream media, who were saying that the abortion issue had declined in importance, turned out that wasn't true at all. And uh, once again, the, I think that the combination of the abortion issue and January 6th and the, the growing perception of this threat to democracy mobilized people in a way that no one, well, I shouldn't say no one, that the mainstream media and the Republicans could never have believed. I wanted to ask you about uh, some contradictions here, because Americans generally strongly agree with, with many Democratic Party positions and disagree with Republican Party positions when it comes to women's reproductive rights, gun control, taxing the rich, student loan forgiveness, climate change, protecting Social Security and Medicare, marriage equality and acceptance of the LGBTQ community, and, and lots more. What's the ex explanation, therefore, as to why we have almost half the population voting for Republican candidates against their own, really, self-defined economic self-interest? And one plausible explanation is the alignment of an alarming number of people across the U.S. with Republicans' tacit, if not explicit, support for a white supremacist ideology. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. You're absolutely right. I, I think that there's a number of factors. So some of it is regional histories and alignments. Among other things, the virtual abandonment of rural areas by the Democratic Party in their uh, strategy. So it's left open the field. Related to that 
has been the growth of right-wing radio and other forms of media, but particularly right-wing radio in large portions of this country, particularly in rural areas. Right-wing radio, right-wing talk shows, in addition to Fox News, becomes the principal outlet for information. Now, all of that ends up helping to inflame, incite these very deep fears that large parts of white America have. Many people don't identify their interests purely or primarily on an economic basis. And they look at other things. Whether they're right or wrong is irrelevant, but they'll look at things like guns or who's moving into my neighborhood or will my child get into college or will a black person or a Latino or Latina grab their slot, right? And so it's not about inoculation. It's really changing the entire framework that masses of people um, have right now. And as I like to say metaphorically, putting on a different pair of glasses to really understand what is going on. And that's how people will discover their interests. But you can't simply dismiss the way folks identify their interests. That's part of the problem. And so that means that, among other things, that there needs to be a real effort in the, in the rural areas to beat back right-wing populism. That was labor and racial justice activist and author Bill Fletcher, Jr. Find more analysis and commentary on the outcome of the 2022 midterm election by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Analysis of exit polls in the 2022 midterm election found that the large turnout of young voters across the U.S. was a key factor in preventing the widely predicted red wave of Republican victories in both state and federal contests. Tufts University's Tisch College of Civic Life estimated that 27% of 18- to 29-year-old voters cast ballots in the November 8th election, and that 63% of them voted for Democrats in House of Representative races. The participation of young people at the polls this year was the second-highest rate in midterm elections over the last five decades, second only to 2018, which saw the highest youth voter turnout since the early 1970s. Issues such as protecting women's reproductive rights, climate change, legalization of marijuana, and student loan debt forgiveness help mobilize many young people. Further analysis of election returns found that the youth vote made a critical difference in Senate and governor's races in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona. Your reporter spoke with Mariana Pecora, Deputy Communications Director with the group Voters of Tomorrow, who talks about the work her group did to achieve a large turnout of young voters in the election and what Democrats must do to maintain youth voter engagement. So we are a Gen Z-led and run organization. Our staffers range from ages 13 to 25. Um, We're all students or we work full-time and we run this organization as a passion project because we care so much about democracy and turning out young voters. So over the course of the past couple months, we've been running this organizing program specifically in swing states across the country 
where there was a pro-democracy candidate and an anti-democracy candidate up for election and where young voters could be the deciding factor in that election. Um, We contacted voters through over five and a half million text messages, and we were able to see the rewards of that organizing program in increased youth voter turnout this year. So we're really proud of the work that we did, and we're really excited that young voters really do care and are turning out to vote this year. Our program, I think, is really special because we do a combination of on-the-ground organizing through our chapter system and then um, a text and phone banking program that I mentioned before. But I think that the really unique thing about Voters of Tomorrow, and it's the unique thing about Gen Z as a whole, is that there's a couple of unique factors you have to consider when you're reaching Gen Z. And one of those really big factors is that the traditional voter contact methods that other organizations or that campaigns are typically doing because it's the way that it's been done in politics for so many years aren't necessarily going to be the best ways to reach young voters. If you're canvassing a young voter and you're going to their home address, chances are they're away at college and they're not going to open the door their parent is. Or if you're calling a young voter, chances are they're not going to pick up the phone because we just don't answer calls from unknown numbers very often. So we're really focused on relational organizing, talking to the people that you know and that you trust, people that are on your campus, people that you are friends with, getting that connection and making sure that people understand on a personal level why voting is so important, why showing up is so important. And then that's why we focus on text banking in our organizing program, because that's where young voters are. We reach each other through text. We can more accurately, more effectively reach young voters and talk to each other if we're talking to each other on the platforms that we normally live on and that we spend our time on. And that's just a big part of the thing, I think, that campaigns and other organizations are going to have to shift to as Gen Z makes up a bigger part of the electorate is meeting young voters where they're at and learning to adapt to the platforms where they find themselves. So over the last three election cycles, the youth vote has been critical for the Democrats. From your perspective, what should the Democratic Party, as well as specifically progressive candidates, what should they be doing that won't take the youth vote for granted? What kind of meaningful outreach should the party be doing to solidify and expand the youth vote going forward? I think that it starts with doing any outreach at all, really. Um, It's really disappointing for young people when they're not getting reached out to by campaigns um, or by people that whose votes they're trying to get. There's this vicious cycle that I think that happens between campaigns and young people where campaigns don't reach out to young voters because there's sort of a stereotype that young people don't vote and thus young people don't care enough about the campaign or about the ballot um, or like whatever's happening and then they don't go and vote. So I think it starts with reaching out to young voters at all. Um, I think the second thing is partnering with organizations like Voters of Tomorrow. If you're going to be a candidate that's saying, I want to reach out to young people, I want to earn your vote, I want to fight for your future, the best person that's going to be a surrogate for Gen Z is another member of Gen Z. And that's something that we think is really special about our organization. We're not older people talking down to younger people. We're younger people having conversations with each other. So I think that's a really big part of it is having people that are reaching out to young organizers like us and then just having younger people run in general, too. We just saw Maxwell Frost get elected to become the first Gen Z member of Congress. We are incredibly excited. Um, Voters of Tomorrow is one of the first national organizations to endorse him. So we've been following along his journey for about a year now, and that's really exciting for us. 
And so we want to see more young people represented in Congress. We want to see people that are going to be fighting for our interests in the room where decisions get made. And we think that that representation is really important. That was Mariana Pacora, Deputy Communications Director with the group Voters of Tomorrow. Learn more about the groups that work to turn out the youth vote in the midterm election by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Indian nations within the United States were granted or had forced upon them U.S. citizenship in 1924. But for governing purposes, many tribes are still considered to be separate nations. Now a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, Holland v. Brackeen, is challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. The act was passed by Congress in 1978, after it was discovered that twice as many Native children as non-Native youth were being removed from their homes and placed in foster care or put up for adoption. ICWA gives Native American families and tribes priority in foster care and adoption proceedings involving Native children. Both sides in the case made arguments before the Supreme Court on November 9th. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Chase Iron Eyes lead attorney with the Lakota People's Law Project, based in South Dakota. Here he lays out some of the history surrounding ICWA. As the so-called Indian residential schools era wound down, where many were more like brutal concentration camps, they were replaced by a system of foster care and adoption, which still resulted in removing hundreds of thousands of Native children from their families and tribes. The Lakota People's Law Project filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court case, arguing for the protection of ICWA. Now, this happened to hundreds of thousands of Native people, and and the purpose was to get us away from the Tiwahe, from the family circle within which the unwritten cultural mores and, and the spiritual ceremonial protocols are transmitted to the next generation. So that that is what ICWA is about. ICWA didn't just spring up from from the good judgment and and, uh, benevolent actions of the United States Congress. ICWA came as a result of struggle. It's still, you know, take a look 40 years later and you have states who are unwilling to honor federal law, who are unwilling to honor a Native American tribe's right, inherent right, God-given right to determine who their people are, who their citizens are, the constituencies, their their members, and to have that right honored by the states of the Union and by American settlers who are seeking to adopt these Native American children who we see as the source of, of our ongoing ability to determine our own destiny. Like that, that's kind of the political reality around here. There's a very violent settler colonial mentality that is at work here in in these states that America now knows as like South Dakota, for instance. I mean, Christy Nome, the current governor, is is an Indian fighter. She is a hater of tribal sovereignty. South Dakota takes about 
740 Indian children every single year. When they take them children, according to ICWA, they're supposed to notify the Indian parent and the tribe which, which the child comes from. The secondly, they're supposed to place the native child with that child's family or next of kin. That's option number one. Option number two, if they can't place with family or next of kin, then within that child's tribe. Option number three, if they can't place within the child's tribe, then any tribe or a tribe that the child may be eligible for enrollment from, or maybe they're descended from, you know, another tribal nation. Like we're, we're very mixed Native people. We, we're all over, the, all over the board. Chase Iron Eyes, thank you for that history. Now, can you sum up the argument at the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court is considering two issues, whether or not the Indian Child Welfare Act, a federal law, violates the anti-commandeering doctrine, which says that the federal government can't tell states what to do in certain areas. Now, can the federal government, because of its treaty relationship, because of its trust relationship, require that the Indian identity is protected? We say yes. Those of us on that side of the brief say yes. Obviously, Texas and the Gibson Dunn law firm say no. The second question is, are Indians distinct political entities or are they a race or an ethnic minority within the confines and the frame of American citizenship? So those, obviously, we say no. We're Native nations. We're independent Native nations who've been forced into a state of dependency, and that's why they call us distinct political entities or domestic dependent nations, which is an oxymoron. But we are not a race of American subjects whose apex of rights terminate at civil rights and constitutional rights. We worked very hard to organize and increase tribal governmental capacity to create institutions that could take all of these children. If you're doing devil's advocate, there is a lack of Indian homes to place children who come into the Department of Social Services in these uh, colonially oppressed demographics and landscapes, the, the ills and the symptoms of an foreign and imposed poverty culture a lot of times lead to broken families. But we were trying very hard to increase that tribal capacity. So Kevin Washburn was the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs. He came out to Rapid City, South Dakota. We had different tribal leadership from the Standing Rock Nation and, and all the other tribes of the Ocheti Shakoe gather in Rapid City, South Dakota. And that was the big the beginning of of our role in drafting some of the fixes for ICWA. And but but it doesn't matter what we draft and how much we say, yes, this is how good it should be. What matters is whether states are going to start honoring the first Americans, tribal nations, or whether they're going to continue to take our children. That was Chase Iron Eyes lead attorney with the Lakota People's Law Project. Learn more about the Indian Child Welfare Act and the case challenging the law before the U.S. Supreme Court by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org. 
where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, KMWV in Salem, Oregon, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.